0: I'm Jessica Livingston, and Carolyn Levy and I are the social radars. In this podcast, we talk to some of the most successful founders in Silicon Valley about how they did it. Carolyn and I have been working together to help thousands of startups at Y Combinator for almost 20 years. Come be a fly on the wall as we talk to founders and learn their true stories. Carolyn, I am so excited because today we have on the show my friend and Y Combinator co-founder, Trevor Blackwell. Welcome, Trevor. Welcome, Trevor.
1: Thanks.
0: Glad you could be here.
2: Yeah, no, I've been wanting to do your podcast since you launched it.
1: We've already heard a lot about you from Paul Graham.
0: I know. (laughs) Your name crops up a bit here and there, and so... Well, we'll definitely have some specific questions that we want to clarify from the Paul Graham interview, but I want to go back a little bit to how did you make it from where you grew up in rural Canada to Harvard's PhD program?
2: Well, so I I grew up in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, north of North Dakota for people with more American geography references. It was a small city, and I was like the only there, there were only like a handful of people that were into computers. In, you know, and when I was there in high school and, you know, I'd, I'd read about Silicon Valley. I mean, I had an Apple. My mom somehow managed to get me an Apple II computer when I was a, a kid. Um, and, oh, wow. you know, I read everything about it and about how Jobs and Wozniak had created this thing in their garage. And I sort of imagine them like with their fingers freezing in the in the garage, because uh, that's what <laughs> Saskatchewan Even garages are like. They but. were in
0: California. <laughs> you were in Saskatchewan.
2: Well, I'd never been to California. <laughs>
0: Sunny so. Sunnyvale.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so I always sort of wanted to to go there to see it, but you know, I ended up in uh, Ottawa for college at Carlton University. Um, studied mm-hmm. engineering and computer science there. And then I started working for Bell Northern Research, which was uh, kind of like Bell Labs for Canada. Uh, it was the research arm of the oh. Canadian uh, phone company.
0: After college?
2: And, yeah. Well, actually, dur- I mean, during college in the summers um, and even in the okay. evenings after college. And uh, they were doing a, a joint project with uh, the guy who ended up being my advisor at, at Harvard, H.T. Kung. And so I I got to know him through that project and they put in a good word for me and I got accepted there. So, you know, I put everything in my, put everything in the car and moved to Boston and started at Harvard.
0: So what did it feel like to show up in bustling Cambridge, Massachusetts from Saskatoon?
2: (laughs) Yeah, it was an eye opener. Uh, All kinds of things I'd never really seen before, but you know, it was I, like I got there and and like, you know, it was this this transition to uh, suddenly being in a place where like almost everyone is smarter and more knowledgeable about the subject than I am. So that was, you know, that lit a fire under me, <laughs> had to had to try and catch up.
0: But you must have caught up pretty soon because you met Robert, Robert Morris, because you were in. Like getting the P- your PhDs at the same time, right?
2: Yeah. We had the same advisor and our offices weren't that far from each other.
0: So Paul had started via web and he was good friends with Robert and he asked Robert, who's the best programmer in your program? And he said, You. So you must have caught up very quickly. I guess so. <laughs> very modest. You're very modest. Trevor. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I mean, I was I was good at the practical stuff, and and it, w- it was the theory that I felt insecure about because I I st- sort of studied computer engineering rather than computer science, um, so I could program. But you know, they would keep talking about these complicated theory things that took me a while to catch mm. up on.
0: Well, Paul described you as basically a programming monster doing prodigious feats of programming. Uh, which now that I know you, I believe. But do you remember when you were with Robert in the program and he said, hey, I'm working on this startup? Do you remember getting introduced to Paul and the whole via web thing?
2: Yeah. So he, he introduced me to Paul and Paul like explained this idea that, that lots of people would want to sell things on the internet, which I believed because uh, you know this was late 94. And Amazon sort of existed. Um, there were a couple of other bookstores on the web. I just loved it because I could order any book I wanted if I just knew the title um, instead of like whatever might be available at the campus bookstore. So I liked the idea of there being, you know, more things for sale on the Internet. And I I believed the idea that, uh, you know, every catalog company would eventually need to be on the Internet, which, you know, which was a bold idea in 1994
0: yeah and you probably dealt with your fair share of catalogs being like an electrical engineer right wasn't everything didn't you have huge catalogs
2: well yeah i mean like in like in Saskatoon, there was not a retail store for uh, computers yeah. or electronics you know i would order stuff from like digikey existed then in the eighties um uh that's that's oh, wow. still the 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 standard place to buy electronics components, but you know at the time it was like In the back of a magazine, there'd be this, you know, page with a, a, you know, a form to fill out for (laughs) quantity and price and whatever, and you'd send it in with a credit card, with my dad's credit card number. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) so, yeah, being able to order stuff on the internet seemed great.
0: I'm dying to know what your first meeting with Paul was like. What did you think of him? What was he like? What stage was ViaWeb at?
2: Well, what actually got me interested in it was that it was a software business that didn't require writing windows software and putting it in a box and shipping it with version numbers. So like kids these days, don't know how horrible that was, but in the, in the pre-internet days of software, like to sell a piece of software, you would, you know, you would write it and then you would, you know, burn it on CDs, put it in a box with a nice glossy cover on it and sell it. And if there was something wrong with it, you know, if there was a bug in it, uh, too bad. Um, the users had to suffer with it until like next year when the next version came out. Yeah. And cuz there was there was no updates, no no downloads. So that's a terrible way to write software because knowing that any mistake is going to take a year to fix, you probably want to spend like 6 months testing every aspect of it. You got to test it on people's weirdly configured computers and with other software and it was such a grind to just make a simple piece of software that did something. So not many people wanted to be in that that business um so and and certainly not me so like when paul pitched this idea like we could write all the software on our unix systems that we liked from from using them in grad school and run it all on our own hardware and update it whenever we liked to me like that that's sort of what got me excited about it
0: okay the novelty of the sort of web based software basically.
1: Yeah. You never heard of anyone doing this before? Like this was not a thing you'd ever heard of?
2: No, real, not really. Like it existed for, um, for open source software, but I can't really think of someone who made a business doing software in that, in that way.
0: So how did they reel you in? How did they entice you to get involved? Cause you were getting your PhD.
2: Yeah, no, I had, I had, yeah, I had official things to work on. Um, well, Paul showed me this demo of this thing that I'd never seen before, which was using a web browser, but instead of like, when you clicked on a link, instead of just like going to a page that that link pointed to, it would do something, it would change something on the the system. So he had this, you know, little demo, it was no, no colors or anything. It was just, you know, like blue links on gray background. Um, But you could sort of create data on the server just by clicking links. And I thought, wow, this is, this is great. Like someday all software is going to work like this. Um, And so I wanted to just try writing software that way to see if it really was possible. Mm -hmm. So I wrote, I, you know, built this completely separate thing that just, just did that. I started it on my birthday, which is why I remember the date. I thought, like it's my birthday. I can do whatever I want. I was in at the, in at school, like didn't want to work on my PhD. Um, mm-hmm. so I thought I'll just, I'll just write one of these things where you can click on links and it does stuff.
0: Did you write it in small talk, Trevor?
2: Yeah, I wrote it in small talk, which is, it was a good language to do it in. L- Lisp was also a good language to do it in. Yeah. I wrote it in small talk. And then a, f- a couple days later, I showed that to Paul and said, Hey, check this out. Um, and so, so he could sort of see that I'd gotten the, the idea. And then, you know, we kind of started working on it. It was quite a while before we got official about, you know, stock or paychecks or anything like that. But we sort of, yeah, decided, like, I would be, I'd be part of this thing. Did
1: you end up finishing your PhD? Or, like, what was the timeline in terms of you getting really involved in via web or, and graduating? Like, what, what happened there?
2: They overlapped in like the most difficult, stressful way. Um, <laughs> I did finish my PhD. Okay. Um, okay. You know, like I graduated on the same day we signed the acquisition deal with with Yahoo. Uh, um, don't you remember
0: do that Canada, from yeah, Paul's yeah, yeah. interview? Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Insane. Yeah,
2: I had to like duck out of the ceremony, like in my crimson robes. You know, run running through Harvard <laughs> Square to like wow. sign this thing. <laughs>
0: No way! Uh, I mean, you you know, literally ducked out of your graduation.
2: Yeah, but you know, like uh, months before that, I realized, like, actually, I really just like I like building this thing. I want to keep working on this company. I think it's going to be great. Um, But you know, I said I'd like do a PhD, so I got to write up a thesis. So yeah, I took a sort of a bunch of the things I'd been working on and put them all into one big file and started editing them until it kind of made sense and for your dissertation you mean yeah yeah
0: looking back on your dissertation does it feel like it was a fascinating one or did you just say i have to write a dissertation i'm working on this kind of thing let's make this work
2: um i think there's there's some value in it um like it definitely is uh like there's sort of one core idea and then there's a couple of weekly related, uh, examples of how to use it. Um, and cause those are just the things I'd been working on. Um, and I'd, like, I, I had this idea for a while and thought, you know, this would be a good way of, um, it's, it's a, it's a way of measuring the performance of systems. So when you're trying to make a computer go faster, um, or some software go faster, you got to measure it. And there are lots of ways of getting fooled because computers just go faster and slower sometimes, um, for mysterious reasons. And so I had this way of, of making more robust uh, performance measurements um, sort of in the back of my head for a few years. And then just tinkering around with things, I had used it on a couple of projects. And so I thought, OK, that's going to be my thesis. So I got, I got two chapters already.
0: <laughs> Does this have anything to do with the Bogometer or nothing to do with the Bogometer?
2: <laughs> no, not really. <laughs> Maybe the name Bogometer sort of comes from that, but... Um, well, cause, okay. So the Bogometer, this was another like new idea that no software company had probably ever had this opportunity before, but we had software that was running on our servers and the discs were clicking away and, you know, it could sort of, like notice in the middle of the day, the disks would be clicking away more like disks used to click. I remember. So we thought let's make a big mechanical dial that has like a, a, you know, a a clock hand that goes back and forth that shows, you know, how many hits per second and how many orders we're getting. I mean, at first we were getting like zero orders per hour, maybe one. Um, So that, Mm -hmm. that dial was, didn't have much range, but um, so we, I, I made this thing with one dial that was like the number of hits per second. And it would, like like I so I had a motor and a and a big um you know pointer on it and a I could laser print a scale so I could change it when we when we started growing and so I put all these things together and it was and connected it to a serial port on one of the computers and it showed us you know how many hits per second we were going and so it and it ended up being always one of the little highlights of the tour like we'd have investors or you know potential employees or something or customers coming. And we'd say, look, you know, we're getting 4.5 hits per second on our on our servers. But
1: why is it called um, the Bogometer? Like, what's the bow?
2: <laughs> well, because I thought, like, Paul sort of suggested this idea. And I thought, oh, that's so bogus. It doesn't matter how many hits we're getting, like, this second, as long as we know, like, day to day. Um, so I, I called it the bogometer and then like it actually ended up being a really good idea because, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, sometimes we like something, sometimes something would go wrong. The internet would go down or something and all the dials would go zzz, and, we'd just, and you could hear them because they made a little whizzing sound. So it was, so you'd say, Whoa, like something's going yeah. wrong.
0: Now yeah. you know, was the bogometer in your office, which actually was also the server room.
2: It, I put it. Well, maybe one version was inside, but I, I put it on the wall outside. So people would sort of look in and there'd be this rack of slightly wobbly servers. And, uh, but, but then this, this, uh, cause it, it grew to have, I think eight dials on it, um, showing all kinds of things like revenue and, um, you know, Oh, editing. let me pause
1: you on that theme. So, uh, cause I know we're going to talk about robots soon and I'm just wondering like that building knobs and dials, is this, very early robot stuff or had you already been building robot stuff as like a hobby on the side?
2: Oh, I started building robots, um, you know, in middle school. Didn't, didn't do a lot for my social (laughs) popularity, but, um, it was, it was fun. Um, (laughs) and uh like they were pretty pretty clunky early on this they, like the first one was like a big uh old oil drum you know one of those sort of green and white striped drums and i yeah put some holes in the bottom and had these um army surplus motors and um like a box with switches on it to to control it and i eventually put an arm on it and so i'd been building robots uh that's sort of what I always wanted to do, I think.
1: Okay. So the Bogometer was not like your debut robotic thing. This is like hobby that goes way back. Okay. No, no.
0: One of Trevor's many amazing like side projects that probably could be a standalone product Mm -hmm. at a company. Right. (laughs) But he just like whips it up on the side.
2: It would be a good startup. I, I keep hoping one of the uh, you know metrics as a service companies will will have that as an option, like a uh, like a wall display for your office with real time stats.
0: Do they not have that? Yeah, I would think someone would. I, I haven't seen it. Yeah, no, It goes into the office anymore. All right, you heard it here <laughs> first. Great new idea, um, Trevor. Do you remember when the power went out in Cambridge <laughs> and you guys had to keep the servers, again, I'm, I'm going to reiterate, they were in your office. You yeah. Office in the server room. They were like tower,
2: tower servers sitting on one of those like wire racks. So they kind of wobbled a lot whenever someone walked by. <laughs> wasn't
1: it hot? In the, oh, it, they, no. Those rooms get hot, right? Like, wouldn't it be hot in there?
2: They did. Yeah. No, they were, they were quite hot. We okay. had, you know, f- and like with one, it wasn't so bad, but at some point we had maybe six of them. Um, and, uh, and then, so then I got, uh, like an air, a window air conditioner and that wasn't enough. So I stacked, like ended up with stacked four window air conditioners, uh, to try to keep this room, which was like, you know, we were in, we were in, we were right in Harvard square, which is a great location. Cause it was, you know, just a few minutes walk from my grad school office and there were restaurants and shops. But, you know, this thing had, been a house, I guess, in, in a long time ago. And, you know, someone converted the third floor to, um, the, an office and it had been it was like, like a wooden professional it was a wooden office. House, yeah. Right? Wood, old, yeah. Old wooden, probably 1900 or so structure. Mm. And it had a bar in the bottom, this Irish bar. That's fun. It that got a little loud at night.
0: Um, so you were, your, your room, wasn't your office also called the hot tub because it got the hot so tub, hot? Yeah.
2: Cause it, it was, it was hot. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Okay, so you're oh, in the, the server is clicking <laughs> away
2: and
1: the fans and the, blasting. And the
0: is going back and forth. <laughs> <laughs> so then there's a massive power outage in Cambridge. And tell yeah. me what happened relating to the generator.
2: Yeah, it was it was a it was a big power outage because some transformer blew up underground and it was they said it would be like maybe a day or more to fix it. So and we had a battery backup system. I was surprisingly um legit of us to have that but um it uh you know it was good for half an hour and so in that half an hour i thought okay uh, i'm going to drive out to costco buy a generator and get back here in wow. half an hour um, <laughs> costco is actually pretty far but so yeah so i zoomed over to costco got you know this horrible gas generator you know generac or something um maybe 10 horsepower and uh lugged it up the stairs and put it out on the fire escape
1: i was gonna say wood building gas power generator this just sounds like (laughs) a disaster in the making
2: yeah yeah i'd I'd like filled it up at the at the gas station just like you you know, pour gas in it. it didn't have a can or anything. Somehow we ma- we managed to get it. We managed to cut over to the generator and get it get it going. Um, but it made teacher. such a racket that the people downstairs, like this lady downstairs, who was our, I don't know if she was exactly our landlord, but she was the landlord's agent anyway, um, came and told us like, no, 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 you can't have that thing up here. You know? They so, are
1: extremely loud. Those gas anyway, power generators. They are extremely. Yeah,
2: especially like. You know, it's like a power failure in the '90s, and the city is suddenly very quiet. And you can you can see the stars. Mm. And all of a sudden, <laughs> yeah,
0: <exactly>. <laughs> <laughs> what did you do?
1: Well, also, how if you didn't have a gas can, how were you proposed to refill it?
2: Uh, you know, one hour at a mm, time, I okay. guess.
0: <laughs> but you moved the generator, did you not?
2: We yeah, we moved the generator downstairs, I think, and at some point like we hadn't had it on long enough to recharge the batteries and we lost power. And, uh, but then eventually like a couple hours later, power came back on and it was okay. But, you know, like at that time, you know, we could see it on the bogometer how many, how much revenue per hour. And it was real, real numbers. It was like, you know, tens of thousands of dollars an hour. Um, and you know, our merchants were losing that if, if the, our servers were down and they would call us and yell at us, you know, like, suitably angry for how much money they were losing the upside of this kind of software is you didn't have to have these boxes with yearly releases of the new version um but the downside is like something goes wrong and you gotta you gotta get up in the middle of the night and fix it like i wore the pager for basically the whole history of ViaWeb. you know there were lots of things that went wrong so a lot of a lot of late nights (laughs)
0: late nights in the server room yeah but the um the generator i mean i what I remember from this story, and that's why I wanted you to tell it, wasn't it like on the sidewalk with like twenty different <laughs> extension cords going all the way up to the third floor into the window through the office to the other side of the back of the office where the servers were like tight <laughs> as a pin mm. like so tight. And, like, chest level because there was no slack <laughs> yeah, yeah. In, the, like, in the extension cord. Sorry. I, I'm sure the story won't seem that good in, on the podcast, but it's, like, one of my favorites. I just love it. Um, were there any electrical engineering adventures when you were at Via Web? Because Paul said you used to do a lot of crazy things in the electrical engineering department.
2: A little bit. A lot of our users wanted their orders faxed because the people in the warehouse probably didn't have email. So someone would place an order online and our system would fax it to a fax machine in, in the, the shipping warehouse. And, you know, at first we just had one fax line, but that soon became not nearly enough. And so we had this big rack of fax modems, you know, 15 or more, all sort of, you know, wired up to the phone, the phone closet. We were we were pushing the limits of how many phone lines you could get into one of these old uh three story walk ups. <laughs> so there's that, you know, various adventures and like trying to keep the servers up all the time like we started off we had one server and if it was down like nobody even noticed you know before yeah, we had yeah. many users and then just gradually gradually it started getting more critical that we couldn't have the servers be down so at some point we thought we should get a battery backup you know because if the power fails it's it's not just that it's down but at least at, at that time like shutting those kind of computers down without uh you know that running a shutdown command could corrupt the disk and then you could be in big trouble. So we got this battery backup thing. But, you know, the computers were already plugged into the wall and we, and we wanted to plug them into the battery backup system. So there's there's no proper way of doing it. But I made this cord that had a like a mail plug on both ends and inject, you know, <laughs> so I could sort of bridge between the power strips that were running the servers and the output of this... Uh, UPS uh you know, battery backup system. And uh surprisingly it did not blow
1: up. Yeah, I was gonna say that sounds really scary. <laughs> oh, <wow. laughs> that sounds scary.
0: Oh my god, did you say, oh, okay, it should work now? <laughs> that's for the listeners, that's like the famous Trevor line, oh, okay, it should work mm. now in his Canadian yeah. accent. And how many would you say 50% of the time it would work? Yeah. Well, <laughs> and the thing is, you guys couldn't I'm move because so you're all
1: still at Harvard. So, like, you can't go move to a more convenient location to put your booming business into.
2: You know, we went around and looked. We looked at, you know, legit looking offices like, gla- you know, glass towers out, you know, on Route 128, and they were so soulless uh, and yeah. grim. Yeah. You know, I probably could have put up with it, but Paul's pretty sensitive to the environment, the, the atmosphere, yeah. and he just wasn't yeah. going to do it. Um, he had so, his
0: routine and he probably I mean I didn't know Paul during Via Web, but I know for sure he had a routine where he like probably got his breakfast, went into program and wanted to like walk to and from work. Did not yeah. want to, have to commute out to Route 95. What was Paul like to to work with back then?
2: Like I think the defining the defining dynamic was that he would say he, he would insist that there was a right way of doing something. And I'd be like, Oh, come on. No, that can't be the right way. Um, and then like, I'd go around and think about it for a while and then actually realize he was right. And you know, if, if that only took an hour, it was no problem. But sometimes I'd like build the other version of it, you know, and show it to him. And you know, it was, it was still wrong. And eventually I had to realize like, yeah, actually he was right. So. <laughs> <That> sounds <familiar.
0: laughs> it sounds familiar. Actually, I have to share with you. Paul described you uh, this morning as an extremely powerful engine with a rather small rudder. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> I love that. And knowing you, I love. I just love that. Oh my gosh. Um, okay, so Yahoo, as we heard, uh, you signed the the deal with Yahoo to get acquired. Um, on the day you got your PhD, you move out then to Mountain View.
2: Yeah, so it was clear this was going to be the next chapter of our lives in California. So, um, you know, we moved out there, bought a place like we, you know, we had to move a dozen employees to, um, had to relocate, you know, had to start using Yahoo's server infrastructure instead of our our racks uh, in the, in the walk up. Um, and, uh, so yeah, it was like a r- very busy summer.
1: Were you excited to um, move to California?
2: I was. Yeah. No, as as, yeah, like as soon as I c- came out and we were driving around and there's like Apple and there's Hewlett Packard and, you know, like Silicon Graphics and all these great companies whose stuff I've mm-hmm. been using for years and years. Um, uh, and, and just like, there they are and the employees are walking in and out and, um, so, and let's
0: not forget, though, that Yahoo back then in 1998 was like ground zero of the internet bubble, right?
2: Yeah, no, they were hot. Well, they got a lot hotter after they bought us. Um, not not just because of us, but <laughs> you know, maybe we helped a little. But uh, but yeah, they were they were the the darling of the internet.
0: So, what was it like working there? Did it feel like big company yet, or did it still feel startup-y? Well,
2: at first it felt really quite startup-y. It was, you know, small number of people just doing the work. Um, They had sort of crappy offices in a two-story industrial park in, in um, Santa Clara. And uh, they basically left us alone to just like, you know, we had a, we had a business that was working, the technology worked. They just left us alone to do that. And, but, but we could, you know, we had more resources. We could get more, we could get hardware and, you know, much, much more internet bandwidth. And, um, and then, you know, they started asking us to integrate with some other systems, which, which made sense, like using the Yahoo login and stuff like that. Um, and, and that was all good, but it did start. I mean, it definitely turned into a big company pretty quickly. I think they felt that that was like, they were supposed to be a big company. And so they had to start doing all these big company things even though no one there really had much experience with doing big company things in a way that worked. Mm. So, you know, like one of the things that was frustrating was like at, at ViaWeb, we just talked to our users. Like we, we knew t- dozens of them by name and we could just email them or call them up and ask them questions about like, what should the software do, you know, if this happens. Um, uh-huh. And uh, so, but Yahoo had this, group of like user interaction research. Um, and uh, so they, you know, they wanted to sort of do all the user interviews. Um, and, you know, Ooh. they would produce these nice reports, you know, with statistically valid observations from users. And, you know, we'd get them like two or three months after we had asked the question, um, yeah. which by then I'd probably already completely changed <laughs> what the software did already, <laughs> um, so. Yeah, it was like that was that worked poorly. I mean, maybe it worked okay for um you know, Yahoo's core business of of uh, you know, search and, and internet directory, but it didn't really work very well for us.
1: What happens when you give them that feedback? Are they like, "Oh yeah, thanks." And they just keep doing their same thing?
2: Well, you know, I could have been a better you know, corporate person. Um, I wasn't very good at like, I would just get frustrated and, and do it my yeah. own way rather than try to change the yeah. system. I did once try to change something big there, which was, like, at, at some point I thought, you know, the, basically the core product for, you know, that ViaWeb became, which became Yahoo Store, I thought, this is, you know, like, feels like it's 90% done. I'm mostly doing maintenance. I want to try something new. And so my idea was that... um you know, we had all these merchants who we knew would want to buy ads online for their stuff, you know, to for pointing to their store. And, uh, which, which like wasn't really a thing then. You know, at the time, the banner ads were like, you know, for, uh, you know, TV channels or gasoline stations or like the same thing you would see on TV. Mm-hmm. Um, it was mm-hmm. like TV ads uh, or magazine ads. But I figured like, most of our merchants would spend a $1000 a month on you know advertising their store and driving traffic to it so i wanted to make a, a you know that advertising product google later succeeded with adwords where you can just buy like a, a few thousand dollars of ads with a credit card but at the time in order to buy ads like you had to go talk to an ad salesman and they weren't interested in talking with you unless you were making a you know at least a $100,000 ad buy mm.
0: Yeah. Um, So there's
2: no way you could just buy a few ads with a credit card.
0: So did you build something?
2: I did. I built it and it worked great. And and so like I built this prototype and went and showed it to the ad sales people and was like, look, you know, we can now sell ads to this whole new category of users. Um, And they didn't get it. It was like a, a sort of a case study in crossing the chasm kind of thing where they had this existing business of selling ads uh you know like multi-million dollar ad buys to big companies to procter and gamble and advertising toothpaste and whatnot Mm -hmm. um and so this idea of like you're gonna sell a thousand dollars of ads uh and i would be like no but like there will do that a thousand times and it'll be real money um but they didn't they didn't quite get it um and then but the big problem was um like i had to show a price for the ads right to buy them um Mm-hmm. And I mean, this is a holdover from legacy media that there's there's like a list price, which is like ten times higher than anyone ever pays. It's like the the rate on the inside of the hotel room oh, door, right. where it, you know, like it cannot exceed that rate, and so they put this ridiculous rate up there, and and um and then it, everyone gets charged less. So you know, like the the official rate for the ads would be like eighty dollars per thousand ads for uh, CPM. And but the actual price was like eight dollars. Um, that's what 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 any of these big companies would get a deal for um, mm-hmm. and so they wouldn't let me put eight dollars. I had to put uh. eighty dollars um, and uh. you know because so that kind of killed it. Um, you know at the time it was uh, like it would have been a tiny fraction of their revenue, so it was hard to get anyone you know excited enough about this to like change this pretty big policy and reveal what the what the real price might be because you know a few suckers did pay the the high price oh
0: interesting <laughs> i have on my list of questions why didn't yahoo become google <laughs> <laughs> question mark <laughs> <That's> <laughs> that <what I> <laughs> oh man they could have. oh i think that sort of explains part they partly. should well they should have
2: bought google you know they would have been able to buy google for under a billion dollars at one point and yeah. uh, that would have been a great, great deal, um, but yeah, d- didn't happen.
0: You stayed at Yahoo sort of longer than a lot of people from ViaWeb,
2: right? I stayed about three and a half years. At first, partly out of well, what what turned me off was this frustration with not being able to launch a new product. Because um, mm-hmm. at ViaWeb, like I would, we Paul and I would have talked about it over lunch, and we would have launched it in the afternoon. That's that's. The way we did things, um, yeah, and and then like doing it there, I spent like months trying to talk to the right people and get people on board, and eventually it didn't even work. So what a frustrating thing that was.
1: Did you try other projects or just that one?
2: That was the no. That was the yeah. main one that that you know turned me off working for a big company.
0: So then you decide to go and start. Any bots. Because I just want the listeners to know, like, Trevor was responsible for a really big scientific achievement, which was making the first dynamically balancing biped robot. Tell us what the dynamically balancing uh, biped robot is and how it all got started.
2: Well, after I decided I didn't want to work for a big company, um, I thought, okay, well, what do I want to do? I, I want to want to build something and so I kind of had made a list of all the things I thought you know that science fiction had been promising us for a long time and still didn't exist and that I could contribute to like it didn't need new physics or anything Um, and like robots seemed like the obvious answer so I left Yahoo on a Friday and started a robot company the next Monday (laughs) in retrospect I encourage people to take a break between things because <laughs> you know <laughs> yes, it was fine because like, sure. I was all energized by this exciting new idea but it had been a long time since I'd had yeah. a break you know from working on via web and PhD simultaneously and then yeah trying to transition to Yahoo and then
1: yeah it's a long grind yeah so I
2: started I, I, I wanted to build a, a walking robot like a you know two-legged human-sized walking robot because They they have them in science fiction and we don't have them in real life. So something needs fixing there.
0: (laughs) And pick up where you left off in middle school. (laughs) Oil can. Yeah, basically. Did you immediately rent the space
1: at 320 Pioneer at that point or did it take a little while before you got to that?
2: I started in the the basement. Um, So I bought a bunch of machine tools and, you know, aluminum and made, you know, prototype legs uh, all sort of in my basement. And uh, at, you know, at some point I needed a little more space. So I, I sublet a place from Tell Me, if you remember them. They did uh, voice voice recognition. Um, yeah. Uh, and uh, so I got this, I you don't know, got, got a huge amount of space cheap because it was the, the, the dark days of late 2001. And uh, yeah, so I, st- I started trying to get this robot to walk. And so, you know, the first version... Um, I, I had the hardware, you know, it was two legs with, uh, you know, a hip and a knee and an ankle, um, each. Um, and so, you know, version the the very first thing I got working was I built myself a little miniature version, you know, sort of a, f- you know, hand finger sized version of this robot with sensors on it. And I had the big robot sitting over there and I could move the, move the legs in the little robot and the big robot would move the same way. Um, so, I thought, well, I wonder if I can just learn to make it walk like this, you know, just by, by moving my fingers. So I spent hours and hours practicing and could never get it. Like it would just follow, it would just fell over faster than I could react to it. I could kind yeah. of make it stand and balance with like deep concentration, you know, it's as, 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 you know, hard as balancing a a ruler on your finger or something. You got to be like really on top of it. Um, and Um, yeah, so obviously, so like the manual control wasn't going to work, so I you know went back to working on the full software control for it.
0: Can you explain though, just for the listeners, about like what does a dynamically balancing biped robot mean?
2: So, well, there are a lot of ways of building a kind of walking robot, but the way that had been demonstrated before by by Honda, in particular, the Honda Asimo worked like this um, was. They had, it had pretty big square feet and the feet were quite stiff, meaning like the, the, the joint at the ankle was quite stiff so that, you know, you could take this robot and pose it in a, in a pose such that, you know, if you drew a perpendicular up from the center of the feet, it would go through the center of gravity. And then you could Mm -hmm. just like, with the robot fixed in this pose, you could set it on the ground and take your hands off and it would balance. Okay. Okay. Um, it's, you know, a little, it wouldn't be hard to push it over, but it would be, it would be stable. And and so that's, you know, sort of straightforward to do with, you know, computational geometry. You can calculate, you know, where the perpendicular of, of things goes in three-dimensional space and, you know, where the center of gravity of the robot is. So that was the way that it worked is that sort of geometrical thing where at, at every point in time, the, the perpendicular from the center of the f- foot that's on the floor always goes through the center of gravity um mm-hmm. and that is a particular kind of look to the walk it's, it's very smooth and stable but um you know you have to have the legs bent because you can't sort of bounce up and down and it, it it has a particular kind of look to it um but it it's it really can't deal with soft terrain um you know with like walking on grass or anything um so I wanted to build the thing that walks like people do.
0: And and in the the Honda one they'd always put like a flat surface down when they when they did demos of it. Yeah, they
2: built they brought their own stage with carefully yeah. you know constructed um you know layers of of uh you know cross members under the stage so it had the same stiffness everywhere. Yeah, I wanted to build something that could just walk uh you know anywhere people can. Um so it had to balance dynamically and you know also i wanted it to be able to run and jump and do things like that um so th- the other problem with the kind of stiff jointed robot um is uh you, you can't you can't jump because you know these each of the joints like if you think about the knee joint there's the knee joint and then the a gearbox and then a motor so if you try to land a jump on that thing there's just going to be gear teeth flying everywhere so i built mine with uh compressed air power, he used uh, pneumatic cylinders for all the joints, um, which, I mean, what's good about them is, uh, well, they're springy and, and kind of the same amount of force per unit area that muscle produces, but 50 pounds per square inch is, is what you get from the cross section of, of human muscle and indestructible. You could jump and bounce and, you know, kick the ground, you know, over and over again, and it wouldn't do any damage. Because I'd also seen, you know, robotics programs, uh, like I'd, I'd seen some work at Carnegie Mellon um, where they were building a, a walking thing closer to the the ASIMO style. And it, everyone was terrified to actually do anything with this robot. Like they had this nice piece of hardware, um, mm-hmm. but they, they knew that like if, if the software did the wrong thing, it would just like break it. Yeah. Um, and then they'd be spending the rest of the month like – replacing gear teeth um
1: (laughs) (laughs) i just have to ask this question because as you're talking what's going through my head is all of those youtube videos we've all seen of boston dynamics right and all and their dogs and their bipedal and all the you know and i'm just as you're talking i'm thinking like yeah i know exactly what he's talking about because we've all seen these videos when you watch those videos are you like yeah i figured that out a long time ago like how what's what is your emotional reaction to watching well
2: boston dynamics is I mean, the, the stuff in the last two years is way ahead of where I got to. Sure, um, uh, it's it's pretty impressive.
1: Do you ever feel like, yeah, I figured that out before anyone else was really doing that, or like, like were they simultaneously figuring out?
2: I think they were simultaneously working on something pretty similar. Okay. And I think there was a time like when I was ahead, and then they were ahead, and I was ahead, and they were but ahead. Were you guys um, keeping tabs on each had, other? Um, like, did
1: you knew what they were doing? They knew what you were. Okay, yeah. Okay. So it was just a standard sort of mildly competitive situation.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, at the time they weren't commercial. They were just DARPA funded and, um, you know, we're, we're publishing and, and I was, I was releasing videos on YouTube and, you know, so it was, it was all sort of, I don't know, not super open, like neither of us open sourced our software, but we were, we're happy to demonstrate what we had. Well, then my
1: other question for you would be, Did you have a commercial use case in mind while you were doing all this tinkering or you were like, Hey, I'm just going to figure it out because it's such an interesting thing for me to do. And I'll figure out the business case later.
2: Um, I didn't have, no, I didn't have a very clear idea of what it would be good for. I mean, I thought, you know, someday there are going to be robots and at least some of them ought to be able to walk because, you know, they need to go outside and so on. But, um, no, there was there wasn't really a commercial okay. commercial case right. for it, and at some point I realized like I need more money. I got to find someone to sponsor this, um, and so I started talking to to um, well started trying to see who would buy mm-hmm. it. Um, so, I mean, the, the military wants walking robots. Um, I, I kind of didn't want to work with the military combination of like vague pacifism and allergy to bureaucracy for the military. The use case for walking robots is, um, you know, if you're operating in a theater where you can't tell who the, who the, the soldiers are versus civilians, um, the only way to know for sure is to send a soldier in and see who shoots at them. Um, and so if you can do that with a walking robot that looks enough like a soldier, um, that people will shoot at it, um, then you can tell who the bad Mm. guys are.
0: Well, when I met you, Trevor, and by the way, you play a very important role in my life because when I came to that party where I met Paul for the first time, you were the person that I talked to the longest at the party. And you had just been featured for your robot for Dexter Prattfall, I think, on like (laughs) CNN. You were interviewed on CNN and had a little clip. And at the party, you would come in from California just to go to the party and you're like, you had whipped out your computer and you're like, let me show you the robot. And I remember it was so fascinating. It was carrying a cup of coffee and not spilling it. Do you remember this Trevor?
2: Mm. Okay. That, yeah. I remember that, that era.
0: <laughs> so what point was that in the, in the, in Dexter's. Well, that was quite a bit later. Cycle. That was, um, okay.
2: Yeah. I mean, so I, I eventually got it kind of walking, not, Not real well, like not well enough that you'd be comfortable having it, you know, walking on a sidewalk in a crowd of people or something. But, you know, it was balancing and walking and could deal with, you know, somewhat non-flat floors and obstacles and so on. Um, And you could shove it a little bit and it would recover. And then I started working on the, the top half of the robot, on the arms. And I you know, I, I thought I was really foresighted by building the top half with the same bolt pattern. So eventually I'd just be able to bolt it onto the legs. Um, but, Mm -hmm. um, to test out the top half of the robot, like, you know, the legs were still kind of unreliable and, you know, it was sort of like a bit of a miracle every time it worked properly. And so I built uh, a wheeled base for the, for the, you know, to, to mount the, the arms on. And, uh, so, like, that worked really well. So we, we had a machine that, you know, it was it was still teleoperated. There was an operator, you know, wearing a special suit and a special glove that would, you know, follow the his movements and make the robot hand do the same thing.
0: The robot hand was Monty, right?
2: Yeah, that's right. <laughs> there was the, the Dexter, the walking robot, and there was Monty, the upper torso on wheels robot.
0: Which, Carolyn, I don't think you were around at dinners at this time, but actually Dexter and Monty played like a very important part of Y Combinator. And we'll get to that in a second about how we started Y Combinator. But the, the robots, when we used to have these dinners, when no one had heard of Y Combinator, and we'd like convince someone important to come to a dinner, we'd be like, there's nothing to see, right? Because right. it's a bunch of startups. Right. We'd say, "Come back and see Trevor's <laughs> robots," and it would take up like an hour. It was so fast because yeah. they were really cool.
2: It distinguished us from the t- typical VC firm. Yep,
0: <laughs> they were kind of terrifying. Yeah, it was very. It was a. They very, were a little scary. Unique experience. They were yeah. scary. They were so big and metal, and they could definitely. Yeah, very t- Terminator vibes for sure.
2: Yeah, we put a put a hole in one of the walls with. A runaway robot. <laughs>
0: oh, <laughs> oh, that obvious. Well, I want to ask you about this. So you're working on the robots. And do you remember when Paul in 2005, he must have emailed you to say, we want to start something up where we invest, you know, in startups. Do you remember the email kind of trying to convince you to do YC with him? Because he really wanted to work with you and Robert again.
2: Yeah. He phoned me, which was unusual. Usually you just send a one sentence email.
0: <gasps> wow. but, he did. Um, he phoned you? I remember you. talking to him like,
2: yeah, I remember talking to him out, out in the parking lot for some reason. Um, and, uh, you know, he pitched me this idea that we should be the kind of investors that we wished we'd had. You know, like when we started mm-hmm. ViaWeb, we didn't really know anything about business and certainly didn't know anything about how to get investors. And we talked to some sort of official investors and they wanted things like monthly cash flow projections. And we had no idea like what, how to even do that. And, you know, we eventually found some investors like Paul's art teacher's husband, I guess. Julian. Yep. Julian yeah. um, was your
0: first investor at Beoweb. Web. It <laughs> was great. And, and-
2: uh, he was, he was helpful. Like he incorporated us and would, he, he was a lawyer. So he knew how to, you know, deal with things. Um, and then we had some other investors who are, are kind of a nuisance, um, but mostly like we just didn't like it was it was such an opaque business we thought let's just make you know i mean this is paul's idea let's let's make easy in- investment uh, the the standard way of getting a company going
0: so when he called you what did he say you won't have to do much except what <laughs> yeah what <laughs> cuz he well, knew you were working <clears throat> on any bots well,
2: at the time it was, it was, it was, um, you know, let's just try this for a summer. We'll put out a call for startups, um, on, on his website. We'll get a bunch of applications. We'll read them. Um, so I think he, you know, wanted me to read the applications and see if their technology was going to work.
0: The applications were PDF documents. Do you remember?
2: Yeah. Well, I turned them into PDFs. they, The way I think the first version was um, we gave them a template, and they would email it in to a special mailbox. And then I wrote some software to reformat it so we weren't just looking at a wall of text and at least had the questions bolded and so on.
0: Carolyn, Um, that's the kind of thing that Trevor used to do. We'd be like, this doesn't seem to be working efficiently. And Trevor would be like, okay, let me just whip something up. And so, yeah, that makes sense that you wrote something that turned the individual emails into PDFs. Okay.
2: Yeah. So, and we, you know, we printed them all out um, and uh, we like, we had, you know, 300 or more. And I remember sitting there with these huge stacks of them where we, you know, have, we were, we were sort of treating them like, uh, like assignments or something. And we, we, you know, write our numerical scores on them.
0: So Paul said, we're going to do this project over the summer, which we called the Summer Founders Program. And you believed in the idea and you thought, okay, this will be a fun thing to do and get to hang out with Paul and Robert. And of course I was involved too, but do you remember like coming for the interviews and stuff in Cambridge?
2: Yeah, that was so exciting. You know, like there were all these people that had this, had these good ideas of, of things to start. And so, you know, like, I get the, yeah. So I remember coming out to Cambridge and we'd um, we'd interview we didn't interv- at, at the time we did like half hour interviews, right? Um
0: Oh yeah, and, even uh, longer maybe.
2: We might have had 45 minute slots or something.
0: I think they were 45 well, minute slots. But how would
2: like we, we never would have known that before we did it. These are the kind no. of things you, you only learn by doing it. So like we we've We learned like, we eventually some learned of the painful ones. We, <laughs> we rarely changed our opinion after the first 5 minutes. <laughs> um and so
0: let's just keep the And the, the ones short. where you knew like this is a no. The next like 40 minutes was really yeah. painful. Yeah. We were recently interviewing the Stripe brothers, John and Patrick, and they basically said, How weird is it that in your very first batch, you got, you know, the founders of Twitch, the found ultimately Twitch, the founders of Reddit, these am- Sam mm. Altman? Like, mm-hmm. is, was that shocking to you that, like, the people, we got were so good in that first batch. Well, I guess
2: that's what we were hoping for—is we'd get good founders. Um, I I didn't have a preconceived idea really for how how many good ones we should expect. I think a lot of investors think you have to get you know nearly a hundred percent, and everyone that goes wrong is like you got to do a post mortem and understand how you screwed up. Yeah. Um, and you know, we knew from the beginning that. it it wasn't going to be like that, 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 you know, maybe only half of them would, would work out.
0: Oh, I think we had lower expectations than that, Trevor. I think we were psyched just to get like some decent programmers and see what happens. (laughs) We weren't expecting half of them to succeed. Yeah. Did you come out that first summer? Did you come out and spend some time at all and attend any of the dinners and like meet some of the first founders?
2: Yeah, I think I went to more than half the dinners that first time. It was it was a, a bit of a strain traveling back and forth, but uh, it was it was it was worth it. Like the dinners were the most energizing thing in my life at the time, um, you know, because it was Aww. like uh, these really interesting guys working on cool stuff. Um, and you know, I, I I liked Reddit the product. I liked um, I liked many of the many of the products. I liked Kiko the 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 calendar that uh, Emmett. Sheer and, and uh, Justin started that eventually turned into Twitch. <laughs> <Somehow>. <laughs>
0: a long, yes, I know. long path later.
2: Through but... a series of pivots. <laughs> yes.
0: <laughs> so do you remember then we felt like this is pretty interesting, this summer founders program. Do you remember when Paul and I came out to California and said, well, Trevor, we don't want <laughs> anyone else to be the Y Combinator of Silicon Valley. So we're going to do a three month program. In Silicon Valley, how about we borrow some of your office?
2: Yeah, how hard could it be um, to turn this, you know, low ceiling robot lab into a startup dinner theater?
0: You were very accommodating. Um, You're, I mean, you did have a big warehouse kind of thing. You had a lot of space, right?
2: Yeah, I had a lot of space. Um, it had been this warehouse for a, like, religious book shipping company, Um and, uh, you know, so there's this big warehouse, but then, you know, the office part of it was pretty drab, um, you know, with like the Very. acoustic ceilings and stuff. Um, green so, carpet mm. green that still lives
1: <laughs> in one room. <laughs> mm. that,
0: still, that was all over the place. Yes, Carolyn. It's the so whole bad. place was the green yeah. carpet and the low mm. hung ce- acoustic mm-hmm. ceilings and the fluorescent yeah. lights. Yeah. So you said, okay. And we said, we just need a little space. And then... Yeah.
2: Well, and then Kate got to work on designing it, because she designed yeah. a lot of uh, the, the Cambridge office. Um, so
0: Kate Corteau, who was an architect by trade, oversaw the illegal <laughs> renovation of part of Trevor's office space.
2: <laughs> as far as I know, it was completely legal. At some point, the city disagreed um and uh, sh- and shut it down did
0: the city find out
2: yeah well this I maybe mean, i think you were still in cambridge or something but the the city um like found out that we were doing this you know pretty major renovation on the inside really? as i understand it they usually get tips from the people taking away the dumpsters <gasps> like they see all this construction debris and they don't see a construction oh, permit um
0: my god okay keep going
2: so they shut us down and and put the like this big red stop work order on the front door.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And uh, so we couldn't get you know, we couldn't get any of the sort of official contractors in. Like like a union electrician or something wouldn't come. Kate got some of her friends you know, less less formal <laughs> friends contractors to keep working. Um but we couldn't get the electrical work done. So I actually wired up a lot of the lights um in order to like for for that first dinner, you know, we had like people coming, you know, on the first Tuesday night. Um, and you know, like they, they shut down the work just like a week or so before. And we didn't have the lights on yet. So I was like up on one of those skyjack things, wiring up the lights. (laughs) I'm
0: in denial that this trauma had happened. I'm now remembering this. So, so Kate had gotten pretty far though, Trevor. Right. And like we'd ripped out the hung ceilings, ripped out a lot of the carpet. But, like, a few weeks before, the city got wind, busted the construction, and then that's when we started locking the door. And, like, some people still came in and painted. You did the electrical work. Is that what happened?
2: Yeah. Yeah, yeah.
0: And that's why we were so nervous. Because we'd (laughs) already been busted. Right?
2: Yeah. Right. And, you know, we were probably... Pushing the limits on our fire occupancy permit, too, for some of those things. I feel like uh, I
1: want to unhear a lot, a lot of, of this. There, so. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> yes. Okay, maybe let's yeah.
0: change
2: the subject.
1: <laughs>
0: and so the paint was drying on the walls.
2: Yeah, we had to tell people not to, like, lean mm. on the walls that first mm-hmm. night.
0: <laughs> yeah, because the paint was still drying. Oh, my goodness. Um, And that's when, you know, part of the YC dinner experience was come to the back of the room and see these robots mm-hmm. of Trevor's. Mm-hmm. And it was really part of the whole charm of early YC. Yeah. Wow. Do you remember any other crazy stories from the first batch in Mountain View?
1: Yeah. What are your favorite anecdotes from those early days? You know, I
2: remember the Twitch founders, um, you know, like, that started off as something called Justin TV, which was basically Justin Kahn had a camera strapped to his head and a giant backpack full of computer stuff. Cause at the time, you know, the, you couldn't just stream video over the internet, uh, from a phone or anything. You had to have this like complicated system. So they had this backpack with like four different cell phone antennas in it. And, um, that, uh, mm-hmm. that, that Kyle Vogt had built. And then Kyle yeah. went on to found Cruz, um, self-driving car company um but uh so i remember them like bringing this they had this this backpack full of stuff um and something went wrong with it and so they were like using my lab bench and soldering iron and so on to try to get it running again and then this was in the very early days of streaming when when people thought that uh calling the police on a streamer would be extremely funny um and uh well, the, f- the first time yep. they did it, they called they just ordered a bunch of pizzas <laughs> for uh for Justin. I remember.
0: Wasn't it during a YC dinner?
2: It was during a dinner. So so yeah, so Justin was there at the dinner streaming somehow the dinner and they thought, "Haha, we'll order these pizzas and we'll get to see them, you know." S- See him be all confused by the pizza delivery. But actually, like everyone
1: was
0: hungry, and the pizzas. Went, <laughs> Someone else bought well. you all pizzas. What, what, what? No downside. <laughs> I was very annoyed because the pizza delivery guy showed up like during the dinner. You know, we have a we had dinner already, and we had a speaker yeah. coming, and this pizza delivery guy's like, "Okay, I need payment." <gasps> of course, the pranksters didn't oh, pay. I thought the pranksters. Yeah. I had like thirty pizzas. And expected me to pay, <laughs> which I did because I was like, "Oh, it's just in t v again mm. there was oh al- also always stuff like that <laughs> happening. Mm. there were definitely like some crazy stories I feel like that happened within those walls. The toilets always broke down. We only had two toilets for everyone, and that was fine when we only had ten startups but
2: yeah, because we do well, right this thing was basically like a office for twenty people plus a warehouse, so it you know, at its limits when we were having like, you know, a hundred founders. And then when we did the demo days, uh, we'd have, you know, like 300 investors show up um, and all try to park their BMWs uh, on this little side street. Um, And uh, you know, there'd be one bathroom and and we eventually got porta potties out in the parking lot for them. Um, is
1: that true? Which, which were
0: not a little below really the standard
2: that classy.
1: Well, did people
0: like yeah. know where to wash their hands? Yeah, gross. You know. What yeah. about the
1: secret third bathroom <laughs> in the very back? Is that the, the sneaky, sneaky bathroom? bathroom? Was that just for Anybots people at the time? Like you didn't let founders back then. Yeah,
2: right. Because you know we were trying to also, was also trying to run a robot company in right. that space. So.
0: Right. I was very protective of the sneaky bathroom. But by the way, I say it was the sneaky bathroom. At first, we finally redid it, of course, illegally. But it was it was really gross. It was like yeah, it was like the Trevor, warehouse they, bathroom. <laughs> yeah, it was the warehouse bathroom. It was really and, and dirty and it was, with like old it's where cans, we go, of um, stuff. you know, pour out paints or yeah. something. Yeah. yeah, there was like paint cans and stuff. And I I remember that Ashton Kutcher, who was who's an excellent investor, by the way, and he mm. he was coming to our demo days very early on um he was married to demi Moore at the time Mm -hmm. and he brought Mm -hmm. her to one of the demo days and i remember meeting her and she she the line at demo day of the two bathrooms in front which were the quote nice bathrooms Mm -hmm. um was out the door and i remember saying well i do have a Special bathroom in the back. And I was like, but it's really <laughs> gross. And God bless her. She like went to this nasty bathroom in the back with garbage and stuff. <laughs> and paint cans. And I was so embarrassed. I'm like Demi Moore mm. just use yeah. the sneaky bathroom. And I'm so embarrassed.
2: It's <laughs> funny. There, there's motivation to clean it up a little.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, But there were definitely some funny stories in that place. So Paul told a story about you and note cards and I feel like we have to get your
1: side of that story. So do you want to talk about the note we cards? Must. I don't
2: I don't think it's nearly as eccentric as Paul portrays it. But at, <laughs> at the at the at the time I had I had this idea and I it, it actually came from um from John mcphee, the author uh he 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 uh has a there's a book about how his process um how, maybe it was just a new york new yorker article how he writes books and so he said he'd you know go do do all the research and put it on note cards and then spread all these note cards out on the floor like this whole floor of his office until he felt like he had everything in the order that he wanted to write about it in, and then he'd just go through it and write it um so I thought. I should do this for my thesis. I'll just make notes on note cards of like every idea. I'll take my class notes on them even. Um, And uh, at some point, like I'll just, I'll find these two cards from disparate classes and there'll be some great idea that comes from the putting them next to each other. Um,
0: Did that ever happen? A great idea? No.
2: (laughs) No, it was actually a terrible system. It was it was bad for it was bad for taking notes because actually a note card like a five by seven note card is a little too small for like a whole idea of information, especially for a math class or something with a lot of formulas so, derivations as you've it.
1: described it I agree with you not eccentric like unusual but not eccentric but I thought that Paul was making it sound like these were no cards you would bring to parties and you would use them as discussion topics when you were just <laughs> meeting people and chatting with them like it was like they were like you know so did you
0: ever do that let me pull out my family card. <laughs> yeah let me pull out my card on this yeah topic. like did you ever do that we yeah. need to know
2: no, I don't. Th- I don't think I ever did that.
0: Oh, I wonder. No, that I wonder what Paul's thinking of. Okay, what about not at a party, but in the office? Were you ever like, hold on, while I pull out this note card?
2: Yeah, that I. Do pr- sure you ever I did consult yeah. the note
0: cards, basically? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, if
1: all they had on them were interesting academic ideas, versus like cocktail conversation ideas. And I agree. It's less eccentric <laughs> than I was led to believe
0: in the Paul Graham story. <laughs> or what about administrative, administrative data? Like, didn't you have a note yeah, card had, on your car? Yeah, I had car? two on them. Oh, that's just the checklist yeah.
1: manifesto right okay. there. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: No, checklists, checklists are good. Checklists are good. That didn't last long, the whole card thing.
2: No, no.
0: Trevor, speaking of being eccentric... Do you remember when you were on the Segway um, polo team and Waz was on your Mm. team? Can you tell us a little bit about that?
2: Yeah. When the Segway came out, I thought, I thought it was an interesting idea. It, it kind of looked really dorky, but, um, it's, it's like, it's a new kind of transportation. Like no one had, no one had done that design before. It's different from a bicycle or something. Um, and, and I had this fascination with balance from walking robots. So I thought, I, I know how to make one of those. So I made one. Um, and, you know, like in a couple of weeks, I had something that worked. Um, and it was it was pretty clunky. Like it had a little potentiometer for steering. So you, like you had to, you know, it had these big handles for driving. But, you know, this little knob for steering. I, I wrote about that on the internet. And that got a bunch of hits on my website. Um, and I got invited to this Segway Polo group. There was this. There's group of silicon valley nerds uh including steve wozniak who would play polo on uh on segways so they had like polo mallets um and a ball (laughs) and would drive around on on the on the segways um and like it sounds (laughs) well it's it's about as nerdy as it sounds i guess but <laughs> um, it was surprisingly athletic, actually. Like it was, it.
1: it I know, actually like, believe that. Yeah, like
2: like polo on horseback is athletic too. Yeah, you gotta be, for sure. Got to be pretty strong. Well, um, that
0: I believe. Yes. but on the Segway.
2: Yeah, because you're you know leaning and crashing. Um, Were
0: you playing on your Seg well, um, which you reverse engineered, yeah, or did you have your right? Own so I
2: I went to one of these. I went to one of these things and brought my home built one. Um, which in some had some advantages like it was it could it could spin around really fast uh the the segway like you turn the thing and it goes <laughs> and turns around like <laughs> it takes like 5 seconds to do a rotation mine would just go
1: and fling um, you off in the process so, <laughs> yeah,
2: right well i didn't i didn't put any limit on it in nice. the software like i didn't know what the limit should be so i just didn't put one um so it would go as fast as the motors could rotate And uh, so, yeah, I I took it to a a couple of these games and eventually they said, like, like, first of all, it's like, you know, lots of exposed metal, whereas a proper Segway is all sort of had slightly, you know, soft plastic around it. Um, And uh, like, it's way faster. So
1: wait, they kicked you off the (laughs) team because you had a technological (laughs) advantage. So instead of just like wanting you on their team, they were like, yeah, this guy can't play at all. Like, forget it. Drop him. (laughs) <laughs> that is not cool yeah
0: they should have respected the fact that you built why didn't this they, or, they put in orders for
1: you to build them their machines well actually we should ask trevor what he's doing now i mean like you so you so you're not doing so any bots eventually what did, what happened to any bots actually
2: you know i i just um finished packing it up and put it in a shipping container and shipped it to england um
1: oh.
2: and uh so the the robots are coming.
1: They're coming. It's supposed
2: to arrive. They're going to live any, in your barn. Week now. Um,
1: oh, I yeah. can't wait to see They're them. Like long lost friends. Yeah, that's actually sad. But so you're been still working, working on, on just, some robots. Just
2: software stuff, right? for for robots. Yeah. Mm. Um, okay. Trying to write okay. software that will sort of learn to control a body better. Like there have been all these advances in machine learning in the last few years, and some of them have been applied to robots, but not very many. So that's kind of what I'm working on, is trying to figure out how to apply this machine learning stuff, which now works, um, to uh, controlling robots.
0: Well, if there's anyone who can do that, I bet it's yeah,
1: you. Yeah, I'm Trevor. glad you're still working on it. I didn't know that that was still happening, so I think that's awesome.
2: Yeah, well, maybe I'll figure it out.
0: Awesome, Trevor. I had so much fun catching up with you and getting your perspective, often. You know, I'll tell the story of YC and I kind of know what Paul thinks about it too, but I've never really asked you what, what you thought, you know, about some of the stuff that happened in the early days. And of course, hearing about Monty and Dexter, the robots, and I'm glad you're still working on robot related stuff because it's just amazing. And, um, I think this is going to be a really fun episode when it launches. It's like a full circle. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you for coming on the show. And uh it's great catching up with you.
2: Yeah, you too. Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks, Trevor. See ya. All right, bye. Bye. Oh, Carolyn, that was so much fun talking to Trevor.
1: Yeah, it's great to talk to him. And I think he cleared up the note cards story, although Paul's version is funny. I know. But I actually thought that um Segway Polo is, <laughs> is a pretty funny. It's a pretty funny story.
0: Segway <laughs> Polo. I'm so glad he played on that nerdy Segway Polo team. Because the whole reason I was able to get Steve Wozniak to be interviewed for Founders at Work was through Trevor's connection. Oh, no kidding. That was my connection. I didn't know Steve Wozniak. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So that was very critical. Yeah. And also, I mean, not to make a joke out of it, but when I met Paul at his party, like I said, Trevor was the person I talked to the longest and all about his robot.
1: That's serendipity. Like, Like, what if he hadn't shut up at that party? I mean, I know
0: I might have like left out the back door yeah. thinking nobody you know, here. I, I want to talk, talk to. to. <laughs> right, right, right. That was very lucky. <laughs> <laughs> One thing that didn't come up was just how much fun he is to work with. Oh, yeah. And like in the interviews, I'll never forget. I mean, we have some long days mm. with interviews, yep. as you know, do. and you get kind of punch drunk. Yep. And Trevor had this knack of every time, like saying something that would make me go into like fits of giggles and just completely lose it makes me laugh so hard. Yeah. And he's also like saved my bacon several times because he's he's the person you call if your computer crashes and you can't even log yeah. on or you can't get yeah. on. He's like resurrected my my laptop. laptop before. Oh, That's so nice. Life. Yeah. He just can get stuff done yeah. like that. That's That's awesome. And I'm glad to learn more a little bit about. His robots, because they were really important at the time, and he never got any publicity, really, for yeah, it.
1: Yeah, and I actually— he didn't
0: try, I'm, you know? I was just thinking, I'm,
1: I'm happy that he gets his, you know, robot family back to him um, in England, but I'm yeah. sad they're not going to be in our space anymore, because they're definitely a part of the YC folklore from my perspective, since I saw them also the first time I came to see you guys. I got a robot tour also, so we've all been through it. And the fact that they're not going to yeah. be there anymore is a little bit sad, but that's okay. Aw.
0: Sorry. Well, you'll just have to come visit us in England, Carol. No
1: problem. I will do that.
0: All right. This was a great episode, and I can't wait for it to come out.
1: That sounds great. See you soon.
0: See you soon. Bye. Bye.